This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Now, if you thought the election campaign had been underway for ages already, we can't blame you. Parties have been feeding policy piece by piece into the news agenda day by day, almost, and the media have been pondering whether each one would swing the votes we cast, even though we won't be doing so for some weeks yet. But this weekend, Labour officially pressed the start button on its election campaign. Tēnā koutou katoa. Good evening. The Labour campaign bared its teeth today by promising free basic dental care for under 30-year-olds. After National launched its biggest policy package yet last Wednesday. The vast majority of our tax plan is actually going to benefit what I call the squeeze middle. We look at how all that played out in the media this week and how media scrutiny of some of the candidates bidding for a seat in Parliament revealed some interesting agendas but also prompted a bit of a backlash about the media running agendas of their own. I think trying to drag that up now is um, really just B-grade journalism. Why does the state-funded newsroom have an agenda like that in an election campaign and why aren't they being called out on it? That's coming up later, but first, mongrel energy collided with mathematics in the media as the election campaign went up in intensity this past week. I don't think they're panicked yet. I think they're in for a fight. And I think we're going to see a lot of mongrel in this election. Okay, so let's talk about the mongrel. Does that mean that Chippy has to be unleashed, Dilipa? Is he going to be? Is he going to be more negative and more attacking after these polls this week? I think he's all, you've already seen that a little bit. Um, you know, trying to claim that underdog type narrative. That was a panel discussion last weekend on the News Hub Nation show, in which former National Party press secretary and media trainer Janet Wilson predicted more mongrel in the election campaign. And journalist Dilipa Fonseca from Business Desk pointed out that the Labour leader had painted himself as an underdog in that fight. Now, to that point, individual policies had been drip-fed into the election dogfight by the political parties, and News Hub's panel saw no big picture yet. Missing in all that is the thrust of why, and, you know, like you were saying, the big picture of what is the impetus behind just yes. taking what a gesture for behind for right. everybody? So what, is, yeah. what is the impetus the of vision, va- right? vaping? Well, yeah, what is the vision? What is yeah. the vision of these individual policies? Uh, what's the reason for them? At, at the moment, I'm getting a sense that they are plucking the odd what I call retail politics, out of the air because yeah. they think it might work, it particularly very with the vapor. haphazard, though, doesn't it? It doesn't, yeah. say, it doesn't give you confidence of a big vision. And later we'll look at where coverage of the campaign zeroed in on political pixels and not the big picture of what it might actually mean for people. But Janet Wilson wasn't the only one sensing more mongrel to come. After a fiery speech the following day from the Labour leader, TVNZ's digital journalist Felix Damarai wrote this. As the saying goes, there are two wolves inside all of us. For Hipkins, it's the underdog and the mongrel. And today he chose the mongrel. Now, reporting on that on Sunday night, News Hub's political reporter Amelia Wade didn't use the M word, but also predicted more mongrel moments to come. Hipkins is clearly also going to yank up the fear factor on this campaign and use every opportunity to remind voters about Christopher Lutzen's personal stance on abortion, which he knows is a weakness with swing voting women. So, New Zealanders, brace yourselves. It's shaping up to be the most negative campaign in recent memory. But two days later, it wasn't mongrel maulings, but maths they were reporting on. The positives and negatives of the opposition's tax policy had taken over. After a heads-up from National that its tax policy would be out the next day, 
RNZ reported that news, like this, at 5pm on Tuesday. National is lining up to deliver its tax plan tomorrow, promising it will help what it calls the squeezed middle. The centrepiece will be tax cuts delivered through changes to income tax thresholds. But the devil will be in the detail, including how they'll be funded. And an hour later, that prospect also led the news on News Hub at 6. National has come up with a way to pay for its tax cuts for new taxes. The party is set to announce its plans tomorrow and is giving away little about what they might tax. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, this wasn't the first time in this campaign that fiscal holes had been cited, sparking political claims and counterclaims about how much tax policies parties were offering would actually cost and how they'd be paid for. Are you rock solid on the costings? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we've taken our time to get it right. Uh, We've also had external reviews uh, to make sure that we've got all our numbers correct. That's National Leader Christopher Luxon starting the day of his party's long-awaited tax policy announcement with an assurance for Newstalk ZB's Mike Hosking. He had some reason to be confident at the time. After several elections batting off accusations of fiscal holes and other budgetary misadventures, National had got its plans checked by the consultancy Castalia Advisors, and it had found them to be, in the words of the party's deputy leader Nicola Willis, cautious and consistent, possible and plausible. Luxon wasn't giving Hosking all the details of his possible and plausible schemes, but he was saying in no uncertain terms who they would benefit, setting a new world record for use of this phrase in a five-minute time frame. And what we've done, Mike, is we've really targeted the squeeze middle. Uh, The vast majority of our tax plan is actually going to benefit what I call the squeeze middle. This whole tax uh, plan and package uh, for the squeeze middle is actually really standalone. We're going to raise revenue to actually help support the squeeze middle as well. All right, appreciate your time. Christopher Luxon. The party's plans to relieve that squeeze were unveiled a few hours later, and that prompted a tide of headlines like this one from the New Zealand Herald. Election 2023. Nationals tax plan offers average household with kids $250 and Kiwi worker $50 a fortnight. This one from RNZ. National Party tax plan would dish out between $20 to $250 per fortnight. This one from interest.co.nz. National promises $250 more a fortnight for average households. And this one from the press. Families in line for $250 a fortnight under national tax cut. So far, so good for National's PR team. Not only did they get our news organisations to echo the headline figure from their press release, they got them to use their preferred unit of measurement for people, households rather than individuals, and time, fortnightly rather than weekly. As Thomas Coughlin noted in the Herald, that was something of a coup when it came to the party's political sales pitch. All the savings were expressed as fortnightly figures rather than weekly figures, making them look larger. Perhaps that's not the biggest deal. $250 a fortnight, or let me do the maths here, $125 a week would still be a pretty good tension remover for the tightly compressed middle. But as it turns out, National may be unclenching with one hand and squeezing with the other. It's $250 a fortnight saving for an average family with kids includes $150 from its previously announced Family Boost tax credit. 
But that credit would replace the 20 hours of free childcare for two-year-olds that Labor offered in its 2023 budget, which could be worth around $133 a week for families or $266 a fortnight. That, according to a robust consultant cross-checked MediaWatch statistical analysis, is more than $150 or even $250. Though obviously it comes with less flexibility than a cash handout. Other fish hooks were highlighted as the day wore on. Here's what TVNZ Breakfast producer Tom Day noted in a post on the platform formerly known as Twitter, X. Buried on page 18 of the National Tax Policy Plan, they reveal they would scrap Labor's public transport subsidies. This would mean that the roughly additional 774,000 children and young people who were the benefactors of cheap affairs would see them go up. A doubling of public transport charges will probably feel pretty painful to some of those people, particularly given minimum wage workers only get an extra $10 a week under National's plan. But Day and RNZ's Jane Patterson were the only ones to really dig into that trade-off on the day. So this was um, an element of the plan that was not highlighted um, either in the, in the presentation or in the document, um, but basically it would move to scrap all of those public transport subsidies and that's um, free for some children up to a certain age and half price for other people on community service cards or the cards for um, disabled or low-income New Zealanders. National says that the evidence just doesn't stack up in terms of the spending on the money. But if you look at, um, for example, a family with a few kids travelling to school and back, uh, maybe not getting so much out of the uh, Nationals plan, you know, it could start to dilute the savings. Few of those potential objections made much of a dent in what was a relatively glowing response from sections of our broadcast media. Here's News Hub's political editor Jenna Lynch on Wednesday. This is a masterclass in political marketing. National has taken what is, in reality, a $25 a week tax cut for most middle earners, doubled it into a couple, doubled it into a fortnight, slapped their childcare subsidy in there, and all of a sudden they have a $250 figure to slap all over the billboards. That was echoed by Stuff's senior political correspondent Tova O'Brien, who wrote... Generally speaking, National's tax plan doesn't quite get riotous applause. Instead, a slow clap and a bit of awkward shuffling. Politically, though, a standing ovation for National's finance spokesperson, Nicola Willis. Now, to make a short diversion into media theory, horse race journalism is the description given to election coverage that's primarily focused on polling and public perception rather than policy. It's being criticised for being more concerned with the odds political strategy, voter reaction, who's up and who's down, then the stakes, how policy will actually impact people in real life. On a related note, here's how TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay assessed Labour's plan to take GST off fresh fruit and veggies. Politically, removing GST makes sense. It's an easy sell and will make a difference when low-to-middle-income New Zealanders are at the supermarket. However, several experts the tax working group and finance minister Grant Robertson aren't keen on the idea as it puts holes in our very simple goods and services tax. But that doesn't stop it being a good political move. Here's her take on National's tax plan. This was National's big bang policy announcement and it's a good political move. 
And here's more from News Hub's Jenna Lynch on that same policy. And 20 bucks just isn't enough to buy a vote in this economy. All of the focus groups say so, but $250, that is massive money. Genius. This would be incisive analysis coming from marketing experts. But a journalist's job is arguably to delve more into that $20 truth behind the $250 spin, rather than tell us how a policy will look on a billboard or postulate about how it will be perceived by voters, particularly given media coverage plays a big part in those voters' perceptions. Other reporters did more of that delving, including Lynch's colleague Amelia Wade, who looked at potential complications in National's proposal to get rid of Labour's ban on foreign home buyers. Over at Checkpoint, Lisa Owen grilled Willis on whether her plans do enough for low-income workers compared to, say, high-ranking National Party politicians making $206,000 a year. Are you the squeezed middle? Because you're going to get 80 bucks a fortnight at your place, aren't you? I, this package is not about me. I am no, very pleased. No, that's what you get, though, isn't it? So are yes, you the squeezed middle? that is what I get. That yeah. is what I get. Can I tell you, I get less from this package than a median income earner or an average income household. As the week wore on, business journalists and economic analysts also looked at some of National's Castalia-checked numbers and found them wanting. At the Herald, business editor-at-large Liam Dan said the party had made heroic assumptions when it came to projected revenue from attacks on foreign home buyers and online gambling providers. That was echoed by his colleague Thomas Coughlin and tax consultant Terry Boucher on RNZ's Morning Report. They're going to get $176 million a year to start with. That seems highly optimistic to me because the other day, it just wasn't noticed by many, um, the government proposed the uh, legislation for a digital services tax, which tackles um, the likes of Facebook and Google. And that's a measure that's only going to raise about 50 to $55 million a year. Now, this online gambling, unless the scale of it is colossal, I can't see how the numbers there will match that number, which even then people think is a little bit optimistic. Over at Newsroom, Mark Dalder talked to economists from left and right who are sceptical about national so-called climate dividend, which in reality is diverting money gathered under the emissions trading scheme to pay for tax cuts. Despite the efforts of those reporters and others, some of the coverage still took a relatively surface-level view of Nationals' numbers, particularly in the early going, and sometimes parroted talking points put forward by the party. That's not unique to coverage of National. Every party likes to put its own spin on its numbers when announcing a headline policy, and sometimes they manage to sneak dubious forecasts into the media without appropriate scrutiny. One journalist trying to get more detail on our politicians' fiscal plans and cast a sceptical eye over their projections is interest.co.nz's politics and economics reporter Daniel Brunskill. There, there are two separate things. There is the tax policy and there is the fiscal plan, which is just long-term. How much is the government going to spend? How much debt is it going to use? How much is it going to save? Um, that's like pretty important stuff, but they have not yet said anything about that whatsoever. Um, but they have announced a tax plan. They've at least made a good attempt at uh, funding and costing it. It has come under fire, particularly as the week has worn on. But early on, we really just did... I guess, repeat or recycle the headline figures that they delivered in that tax plan. That's the $250 saving for the average family, as they put it. Was that the right move as the media? 
it's tricky, right? Because you have to put something out immediately, and people want to read it immediately. On interest, we actually just ran their press statement at first, um, and then followed up, you know, two hours later with with a piece of analysis um, that delved into more of the details. I would love everyone to wait five hours and have a good think about it and put out something really thoughtful. But it just doesn't seem to be the way that it works. So I, I, I'm not sure that I have a problem with announcing the announcement and then scrutinising it later. But I, I never know how many people read the follow-up stories. Do you, do you think most people did report the $250 figure? I think it was pretty common. Mm. Yeah, that, I think that then is the wrong call because that figure is only for select households and isn't until 2026. The the figure is, is basically, it's, it's about $51 a fortnight for the average earner, um, or $100 for a household if there are two earners. Um, so that is probably the figure that people should have been been using, rather than the, the 250 which is sometime far in the future, and only for a, a select type of family. And that you, you do tend to, when you're writing your first take, just say what the party said, here's what the party said. You know, this is this is a journalist complaining, of course, but we, you know, the press gallery was given a, a, a maybe ten minutes with the policy document before the the press conference. Do you think that was strategic? I never know if it's strategic or if they just haven't finished it yet. But it, it did feel a little bit strategic because, um, you know, then we went to, went into a forty minute press conference. By the time anyone was even starting to write any analysis, it had sort of the news had been circulating for an hour. Financial analysis is actually quite a complicated subject area, a specialist subject area. Do you think because of that, there's parts of the media that can be hoodwinked by how parties choose to present their numbers and plans like this? Definitely. Accounting, economics, finance, really technical specialist skills. People who become journalists do so because they failed high school math. There are a few exceptions, um, and and some people do really great work, so I I don't want to pretend that everyone's bad at it. But I'm definitely not good at math. So it is difficult, and we really rely on experts being willing to help us. All that takes a bunch of time and is often a a slightly less compelling read than the um, the first take. So so I do worry that political parties in particular, they they kind of often get a bit of a free pass with anything too technical and and don't often don't get challenged on it. And, and you know, I could give examples from you know, all the political parties. They they all have things they say that should be challenged but just sort of on a on a, on a regular basis are not. But do you mm. think that National wasn't challenged enough on some of the figures that it provided. For instance, that $250 figure. Was that stuff brought up enough, especially early on by our media this week? I I feel like the media's done a relatively good job on the tax plan. Um, I I feel like they've gone quite hard and scrutinised it quite well, Uh, particularly particularly the revenue from the foreign buyers has um, been, been questioned pretty rigorously. In the first take, I perhaps not. I don't well, know. Well, that's what... it, right? There, so there's almost two different medias this week. There's like the really good analysis that's happened on Thursday and Friday and uh, the pretty surface level, sometimes parroting the talking points from national analysis that happened on the day of the release on Wednesday. So I guess the question is, who, when, when is the public paying more attention? Yeah, I think that's really hard to to know. I'm sure they're paying more attention to the first round of stories. And, and even, even beyond that, Hayden, they're probably not reading the stories. National will put up billboards saying $250 tax cut, and, and people are probably not going to go read the analysis piece explaining where that will come from and how that will work. I, I think what, what bothers me probably more than the level of scrutiny a tax plan gets would be 
um, some of the assumptions that people just bake into their reporting, like people just assume National will spend less. Uh, when I hear that, I, I hear them saying they will balance the budget. I hear them saying they will pay down debt. Um, and I wonder if that's what the public hears. But if you actually go and ask the party, is that what you intend to do? They, they at this stage, will not answer your question. The media does quite well. I think where the media doesn't do so well is in areas where the politicians don't want to answer a question or say what it is they're going to do, and they want to rely on the assumptions or the narrative or, the, or sort of the mythos that the party has built up um, to sort of skate through. And that's what I was really getting frustrated by in that Twitter thread. Um, they would come out and say, we'll get the economy back on track, we'll fix the government books. But when you ask how, that they, they had no answer to that question. Do you think that we are, in general, too focused on commenting on whether parties are doing good political marketing and how they are presenting their plans, rather than just pushing past that and digging into the truth under the numbers, whether it's Labour or National or the Greens or Te Pāti Māori? I, yeah, definitely, definitely think so. Um, but I don't want to be sort of a holier-than-thou um, if if readers find it really useful to have a piece of analysis that says National are doing this for political advantage or Labour are doing this for political advantage, um, that's fine. I think I think newsrooms just have to be a bit disciplined about not only covering. You know, it's 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 okay to report on the optics of politics, but it shouldn't come at the expense of reporting on substance. Um, and newsrooms need to make sure they're getting the balance right. And it's almost, if you're going to talk about the optics, you should really talk about how uh, a party might be cynically trying to shape the narrative. You're meant to be cutting through the narrative, and that could go for Labour on fruit and veggies, where you Mm. also had a lot of commentary saying, really terrible policy, Uh, all the economists hate it, but good politics. (laughs) You know, is that useful analysis? And shouldn't we just be saying, this is actually a poor policy? I think think in GST, it probably is a good example of a good time to write that piece, because it explains, you know, when you've written three pieces of tax experts saying this is a bad idea kind of explains to the reader why they're doing it. You often see the first reaction piece to a policy or to an announcement or to something political is how will this play with the voters? What will this do in the polls? What does this mean for the election race? And that's completely the wrong conversation. Uh, Putting the cart before the horse, if you like. The the politician should make the announcement, the journalist should write about what it means and how it will impact people, and, and then it should have a political effect, good or bad, and then you should write about the political effect that it has or hasn't had. I, I don't love when there is an announcement, there is analysis about the political impact it will have, and then the public receive it. it. It does seem very funny to me to have a political party announce a policy and then to write a piece that says, you, the voters, will like this. Um, yes. But is, is there an extent to which some of these uh, projections, these costings, and they're kind of just made up in general, no matter who's putting them forward. Definitely. We, we get quite obsessed with this. Um, you know, have you, have you priced it right? Is there a fiscal hole? Are your estimates correct? These aren't prices on a shelf um, that you can just go and you can't, you can't go and buy a harbour crossing from a shop and it has a price tag on it. These are all just estimates. So when you're proposing a new policy and, and you've costed it, we shouldn't be too sacred about those costings. We should understand they're just a forecast, an estimate, and they're, and they're not sort of a sticker price. Parties are basically incentivised to do what's been called this week heroic costings, right? If we don't put enough scrutiny on them and say that they are really kind of pulled out of the ether and may not be accurate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but it makes it, it makes it a little bit harder to cover because you have to make 
a value judgment about is this assumption reasonable and if it is unreasonable is it material or is it not you know for, so for example if someone says a bridge is going to cost 10 billion dollars and it ends up costing 11 t to me that isn't a big deal that's just sort of as a rough figure to say whether it's worth doing i think in something like nationals foreign buyers ban there's a real question as to whether they'll get anywhere close to the number that they are proposing, um, and, and that sort of seems material. One, one of the reasons people are scrutinising this so strictly is because National promised that the tax plan would be fully funded. Every single dollar would be accounted for. And now that they've released it, it's looking like that's not definitely not exactly true or completely true. Some of it is, is, is doubtful, at very least. Do you think a lot of these problems would be solved by something, an idea that's been thrown around by both Na Labour and National, crucially at different times, uh, <laughs> they've never agreed on it at the same time, an independent costings unit for policy? I, I think the biggest winners from that would probably be journalists. Brilliant for us to have um, you know, proper, trustworthy, independent. It, it won't necessarily s solve all the world's problems because... You might find that the costing unit comes back with a range. They might say the foreign buyers band will range somewhere between $60 million a year to $700 million a year. And then the political party can say, ah, like we said, $700 million. And the opposition can say, ah, $60 million. But I think it would help and it would force parties to think very seriously about their policies and, and perhaps not announce things that aren't going to work. And it might help with that early stage where often you do get just the parroting of the PR lines. You would at least have some confidence that if you're, if you're parroting a line, then there's something underneath it. I, I don't think so because... There'd still be PR. There'd still be PR. It's, it's actually fascinating. I, 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 most, I usually go and listen to Question Time in the house, and, and at the moment um, uh, a, a daily interaction between... Nicola Willis and Grant Robinson, is they read out lines from the Economist's daily newsletters, you know, the bank economists, mm. and they will literally just, I, I will read the whole note before going in, and then they will cherry pick the bits that they want. And if you, if, you, <laughs> if you just listen to Grant Robinson, you would think that these newsletters were just complimenting the New Zealand economy 24-7. And if you listen to Nicola Willis, you'd think they were criticising the New Zealand economy 24-7. The reality is that they do both, but you can just take whichever lines you want from a report. So I, I don't, I, th I still think that in the first instance, the report would be, here's the party policy and here's the party spin, and then come back in an hour or tomorrow morning and we'll have the analysis for you, drawing from the technical independent policy costing report that will take us three, four hours to process. Sadly, Daniel, it sounds like politicians are always going to spin and maybe even lie a little bit. I have a solution if you want one. Oh. Yeah. You, you, we should pass a law that nobody can file a news story until 24 hours after an event. I actually agree with that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. I think you've sold journalism on your way out the door. You're welcome. <laughs> that was Dan Brunskill, political reporter in the Parliamentary Press Gallery for the Business and Finance News website, interest.co.nz, talking there to Media Watchers Hayden Donnell. Another sign that the election is getting closer and will be closely contested is the broadcasters releasing plans for special pre-election coverage, including live debates with the party leaders. 
We looked at that this week on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights every Wednesday after the 10pm news here on RNZ National. And last Wednesday, we also talked about the problem of politically motivated heckling during the election campaign, which the National Party leader confronted last Monday. I think you're the better of the two Chris's, Mr Luxton, but where are you? You see you're the better of the, of the, of the real Mr Chris Luxton. Oh, you're a funny guy, mate. You're a real funny guy. You know Slim Shady, buddy. Also on Midweek Media Watch this week, we took a look at a couple of sports stories like the All Blacks getting an all-time record beating in London. It's kind of like watching your dad getting beaten up. It was, it was that bad. And how the hunger-striking mum of Spain's beleaguered football boss, under fire for aggressively and inappropriately celebrating with his Women's World Cup winning team, has given Luis Rubiales a bit of a dilemma. There's, he, he likes the job and he wants to keep the job, but is he prepared to let his mother waste away on hunger strike? Tell me again how much my wage is. 675 grand. Which How is, old which is, is my mum again? <laughs> <laughs> You've had a good innings. All that and much more in this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it last Wednesday, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. as we've heard this week on Media Watch so far, the scrutiny of parties' policies is intensifying as that election draws closer, and so does the scrutiny of the candidates for seats in Parliament. Last week, for example, two candidates on the ACT Party's list quit after TVNZ News took a look at their online footprints. The ACT Party is facing scrutiny over its vetting procedures after One News revealed the extreme views held by a number of ACT's election candidates. One candidate resigned immediately. She had once likened COVID restrictions to Nazi concentration camps. And TVNZ's Benedict Collins put some awkward questions on One News at six about that to the party leader David Seymour. I mean, how, how did ACT not pick up on that before you selected her as a candidate? Oh, you've got to look through, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of comments. But it wasn't very hard for Benedict Collins and One News to find those comments, which really did stand out. But last Tuesday, TVNZ One News at Six reported an ACT MP already in Parliament also had some out-there views that were out there on social media. The ACT party leader is adamant one of his senior MPs no longer believes that climate change is a hoax or that people who think the planet is warming are nutjobs. David Seymour insists Mark Cameron doesn't believe many of the things he used to regularly tweet about shortly before entering Parliament. But when Benedict Collins asked David Seymour about that last Monday, the ACT leader pushed back at his ethics. Trying to drag that up now is um, really just B-grade journalism. I mean, you're saying this is B-grade journalism, but I mean, there's a very real chance that Mark Cameron's going to be a minister in about 60 days' time, right? You know, if he believes that climate change is a hoax, okay, yeah, you're, which, you're saying... Which, yeah, which he doesn't, so... Well, seeing as other prospective candidates for the same party had quit for saying similar things in similar ways online just days earlier, clearly these were legitimate things to report and to ask about. But David Seymour did have one media voice in his corner with his criticism of TVNZ's news judgment. Trying to drag that up, says David Seymour, is really just B-grade journalism, which it is. That was Mike Hosking on his News Talk ZB show last Tuesday morning. But it wasn't really TVNZ's inquiries into Mark Cameron MP that wound him up, as much as something we looked at last weekend here on Media Watch. The publicly funded Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority spending some of its considerable budget for ads and promotions, buying airtime on two TVNZ news shows last year. Now the defence was in the corner of the scream allegedly as some sort of recognition that the EECA was involved. Now that, in my 42 years 
in this industry does not even come close to covering your badly exposed ass. In Mike Hosking's mind, the two things were connected. Uh, this is the same company at the moment, the state-run broadcaster, who was accepting money from the government to produce programs on climate change, place stories on their website on climate change, do interviews on Breakfast and Seven Sharp on climate change because they got money given to them by a government department. Second story on the news is all of a sudden uh, we're talking about climate change and whether people are deniers or not. And there's a couple of things to note about that. TVNZ isn't state-run, as Mike Hosking said there. It's a state-owned crown company whose independence from political influence and direction in editorial matters is enshrined in the law. And ECA is not a government department, but a crown entity. Neither the ministry nor the government actually controls ECA's decisions or the spending of its budget for encouraging, promoting and supporting energy efficiency and conservation. Now, last Monday, Mike Hosking wound up other criticism of TVNZ like this. It's an agenda. Why does the state-funded newsroom have an agenda like that in an election campaign and why aren't they being called out on it? Now, TVNZ's newsroom, as Mike Hosking also said there, isn't state-funded. Ad revenue funds One News, which is in fact the very reason that TVNZ does deals with clients prepared to get their messages across into other TVNZ news programmes. And Mike Hosking surely does know this because he pointed out that he himself had hosted both those TVNZ shows in the past. When I was at Television New Zealand, the thought would have horrified us. And I can hand on heart say I would not have touched it with a barge pole. Good to know, but one interesting thing did happen in Mike Hosking's day at TVNZ. Back in 2012, the Herald on Sunday newspaper named Mike Hosking as one of several people in the media, sports and showbiz who were acting as ambassadors for the Sky City Company in central Auckland. At the time, Sky City was in the news a lot because it was hammering out a highly controversial deal with the government to get a bigger slice of the gambling market in exchange for building a convention centre. But Mike Hosking insisted the risk of any conflict of interest was merely theoretical after the Herald on Sunday's reporting prompted him to tell his News Talk ZB listeners at the time this. Last year, when I'd done a bit of work for them and the convention centre happened to be announced, I wrote an editorial supporting it, which, by the way, I still do. And I mentioned at the time I had a small interest with Sky City. Uh, no one responded, no one mentioned it, uh, because then, like now, no one cares. But TVNZ did care, though. And they said that declaring his commercial deals was one of the terms of his contract. Now, Mike Hosking also said on the air on ZB that many of the Herald's claims about him were either embellished or simply untrue, but life was too short, he said, to take the time or trouble to refute them. Instead, Mike Hosking gave ZB listeners this personal reassurance. And even if I worked for Sky City this morning, or anyone else, at no point would that ever, by influence, change a question line or alter my view. I take my role, responsibilities and reputation extremely seriously, and it's important for me to know that you know that as well. But clearly TVNZ at the time didn't feel that, to use Mike Hosking's own words now, its ass was sufficiently covered in spite of that. It eventually said Mike Hosking could no longer do stories about Sky City on TV1. Well, one broadcaster creating a potential or perceived conflict of interest for his employers because of a not fully disclosed relationship with a major company is clearly not quite the same thing that upset Mike Hosking himself this week, a publicly funded body paying publicly owned TVNZ for airtime in news shows. And as we heard last week on Media Watch, TBNZ responded to concerns about that by saying, we are always looking at how we can further strengthen transparency around our paid partnering. So this week, I asked TBNZ's commercial director, Jody O'Donnell, 
What might that actually mean for TVNZ audiences on TV and online? TVNZ is a commercially funded organisation, so the support of our advertisers is actually what enables us to bring the, the news and these types of entertainment content to all of New Zealanders for free. So talent involvement in paid partnerships is already considered. It is about a fit and appropriateness. So we always look through it with that lens. Um, I think we do a pretty good job of it, but we're certainly up for always thinking about how we could do better and how we could evolve it. Um, and if I use the example with the One Climate Special and Mariana, she is a sustainability warrior. So that was a natural fit for that One Climate Special show. So I, I would take that as meaning you'll still do it case by case. But also you mentioned there the talent and people like Mariana Kamal. Also you had Jack Tame, for example, last year fronting uh, short slots about small and medium enterprises, which were promotions for the Zero company. So would you reconsider the use of well-known current affairs presenters so there isn't that perception that possibly, you know, TVNZ's journalists are for hire as well as, you know, the airtime in some news shows? Yeah, look, it is always about appropriateness and fit. So TVNZ always retains editorial control of that. So we always will have the opportunity to make the call whether something is a good fit or whether it's appropriate or not. Does it make a difference to you when you're considering paid partnerships, whether it is a a public good or public entity or indeed an agency of the government? I mean, does, does, it, does it make it less or more likely than you just a straight corporate commercial client in the market? We would have a lens across all categories or all advertisers in the same sense. Appropriateness is critical. Um, so there would be no favour or otherwise against any advertisers in that space. Wherever is appropriate, we will always, you know, have a, a bug in TV language that we use, or certainly a, a verbal mention of something being sponsored or a paid content piece. So I think that transparency piece is really important, and that's certainly something that we'll look to continue to do. That was TVNZ's commercial director, Jody O'Donnell. Well, that's all we have for you this week on Media Watch, but we'll be back with more on the media on Midweek Media Watch after the 10pm news next Wednesday on Nights, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.